before we come to the message this morning, I want to take just a moment to bring you into what life has held for me and for us this past week. Um, a week ago, yesterday, I had the joyful privilege of being able to lead the wedding service, perform the wedding service for my son, Sean, and his fiance Michelle. Uh, it was a really, really joyful moment, gathering together with family and friends from all across the country and all through the, the decades uh, past. And uh, now I have a new daughter, Michelle, and we're delighted to welcome her. Yeah, thank you. And then on Wednesday, just four days later, I had the painful privilege of leading the service, uh, the memorial service for my dear friend, Lon Allison. And I know a number of you have uh, gotten to know him over the years that he's come down here. And he lived a life of incredible faithfulness for the king. And my life was made so rich by his friendship, by the the opportunities for shared kingdom ministry that he invited me into. And we were blessed to get together a couple times a year uh, over those years and just pray for and encourage one another. I will dearly miss this man. I know a number of you have uh, been praying for me, for us, and some of you have jotted notes or sent texts, and that has meant so much. Thank you for your care and for your support of us. Let's pray. So, Lord, as an act of worship, we open our hearts to you. And as an act of grace, we pray that you would instruct us from your word. We pray in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen. We're coming this morning to uh, what is almost the end of our fall sermon series called Snapshots of the Church, in which we've been exploring some of the different images and metaphors that are used in the New Testament to describe the church and to help open up and elaborate on its call. You may remember that we began with images that primarily focused on the nature of our relationship with God. Images like the bride of Christ or priests or uh, children or people of the way. And then uh, we explored the two primary metaphors that have to do with our relationship, mostly with our relationship with one another. The metaphor of us as a family, brothers and sisters together, given the incredible blessing of being able to love one another. And then of a body that is made up of a variety of different members, each of us with gifts and abilities that God intends we would use to serve and strengthen one another in the body. And now we're in the final section. We're looking at some of the primary metaphors that have to do with the, the nature of our relationship with the world that God has placed around us. Last Sunday, Rob preached on the theme of our being ambassadors. We are ones uh, whom God has, has sent into this world as his representatives. And then beginning today and next Sunday, we're looking specifically at what that calling means. What is the nature of our call as he sends us out into the world? The Christian faith offers the most compelling explanation for why the world is such an odd mix of wonderful and terrible, of beautiful and of broken Created by God, but in rebellion against the God who created it, our world shows its brokenness in two main ways. 
Spiritually, our hearts are broken and we are far from God. And systemically and structurally, our world is broken and far from God's original design for shalom in this world. So into this broken world, Jesus sends us as his people and as his representatives. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. The world's spiritual brokenness is the need that we'll be addressing next week when we look at the theme of the church as the light of the world. The world's systemic and structural brokenness is the need that we are addressing this morning as we look at the theme of the church as the salt of the earth. So let's zero in now on that second metaphor. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how could it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled. So think for a moment about the way that we use salt in our culture today. Based on the access that we have to salt and the way that we use it in our daily lives, evidently, this is what you are the salt of the earth means. First of all, we are common everyday stuff and not really worth that much. Salt is one of the cheapest and most readily available products that you can buy. Second, we are largely invisible. Throw us on food and we disappear. Third, you could take us or leave us. We are really important only as a matter of taste. And finally, you can easily get too much of us. There is nothing worse than a mouthful of salt. So there you go, Jesus' message for us today. You are the salt of the earth. Actually, no. As we step out of our own culture and step across into the culture and the times to which Jesus first spoke, we realize that what Jesus is intending to convey through this metaphor is something that couldn't be more completely different than some of our notions about salt. So what was the significance of salt in the ancient Near East? Well, salt was gathered from one of two places, either uh, with great pains, it was dug out of the ground in salt mines, or it was evaporated into basins that were made for that purpose that, were, that surrounded the Mediterranean Sea and were, were filled with Mediterranean seawater. Then, after it had dried out, or after it was dug out of the ground, it was shaped into tapered cylinders for transport and for sale. And then it was caravaned and traded all around the world. For most of human history, salt was considered one of the most valuable things on the planet. More wars have been fought over salt than over gold. Salt was so valuable that it was sometimes called white gold. Roman soldiers received their payment with salt. Their payment was called their salarium, from which we get our word salary. So what is it that made salt so incredibly precious and valuable? Well, salt was used for a lot of different things in the ancient world. Cleaning wounds, treating toothaches, fertilizing soil, killing weeds lining ovens that were used for baking bread, cleaning up newborn babies. But there were two primary uses 
for salt in biblical times. And those were the things that made salt so incredibly valuable. And those two things, those two uses of salt would have been the things that Jesus would have expected to pop immediately into mind when he used this expression, you are the salt of the earth. And both of those uses meet at the dinner table. In the ancient world, salt was used in two primary ways. First, it was used for preserving meat. So let's put this picture up and leave it up for a bit and just let it penetrate. Let it just kind of soak in. In the ancient world, salt was not primarily a spice. It was a preservative. I mean, this is amazing to think about, but until refrigeration was invented just 150 years ago, salt was the primary way that food was preserved on this planet. Meat goes bad because of both the decomposition of the cells in the meat and the spread of bacteria and other microorganisms. So uncooked meat and fish left out at room temperature will become ruined within two hours. And in 90 degree heat, it's considered dangerous to eat raw meat or uncooked meat within an hour. In the Middle East, a land of scorching temperatures, that means trouble in a hurry. First developed as a means of preserving food by the Egyptians, meat was salted by cutting it open and then packing it in thick layers of salt and then finally storing it in sealed earthenware jars. Salting meat actually has an effect resembling cooking it. The salt absorbs the moisture in which bacteria and mold can grow, and it kills the bacteria and slows the, the decomposition of the meat. But it wasn't only goat meat or sheep meat that was preserved with salt. In the ancient world, they salted everything that you could eat. They salted fish, fowl, eggs, wine, greens, olives, other vegetables, everything was salted. Little wonder that there's an ancient Latin proverb that says salt seasons everything. So the primary symbolic association of salt in the ancient world is something that preserves, something that prevents food from breaking down and spoiling. So when Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, he means that once we come to know him and have begun to grow with his people, then God sends us back out into the world that he rescued us from, calling us in part to help keep this broken world of ours from going bad. This is where the word righteousness comes in. Righteous means that things are the way that they're supposed to be. They have been put right. People in power act right when they are righteous. Resources are used in the right way and for the right ends, and people on the margins are treated right. This takes us up to the promise that Jesus spoke just seven verses earlier. Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. The being salt means stepping into places where our world is breaking down and applying ourselves in such a way that we seek to take what is wrong and make it right. For one tenant, one victim, one defendant, one family, one student, one minority individual, one child, 
Look any direction in our broken world. And there are needs and opportunities for us as Christ followers to make a difference. Every direction we look, we see the need for things to be put right. We see this in the moral realm, the breakdown of marriage, family, the treatment of women and children. In the public square, related to racial and economic injustices across the world. In the realm of education and academia, in the world of entertainment, in the political world, in the business world, in our legal system, among those in the armed forces, in the world of medicine, and in the stewarding of our environment. Where has God put you in this broken world? Where are things right around you that are wrong that need to be put right? What part of this broken world has God put on your heart? We can't change everyone's world, but we can change someone's world. Let me give you just one example of a way that men and women who are part of this congregation are responding to just one place of brokenness in our culture, and that is the, in the area of children at risk. This is so beautiful to me. And I think this is so beautiful to the Lord. Kathy Fackelman, Carolyn Hudson, Marilyn Dalton, Bob Truitt are among those who've been volunteers at Matrix Life Care, seeking to protect the lives of the unborn. The Hydes and the Sampsons have provided foster care for multiple children. And I understand that the Kellys and the Brennemans have gone through training to be prepared to serve in that same way. The Greasons the Stenbergs, the Sampsons, the Zabellas, the Smiths, and the Kaufmans, among others, have all adopted kids with unique needs or from challenging circumstances. And Leanne Johnson, Garrett Smith, and Tom Covington are all serving as CASAs, as court-appointed special advocates for children at risk in our court system. And those are just some of the names that pop into my head as I look across this congregation. is so beautiful to me. And I believe that it is beautiful to the Lord. That is salt making a difference. We don't believe that through our efforts to stop the decay of this world, that we will be able to bring about the kingdom of God in our midst. Only God can do that. And he will when Jesus returns at the end of the age, and he puts all things right. We can't put the world right. Salt doesn't restore meat. It doesn't even keep meat from spoiling. It just slows the breakdown, and it makes it usable and enjoyable much longer. Well, what's the point then? Should we just throw up our hands and give up? Absolutely not. While we may not be able to make a permanent or lasting difference, our effort to be salt will make a real difference and it will have lasting kingdom value. When we seek to alleviate someone's poverty or reduce our carbon footprint or be there for a child who has been neglected, we are doing something that has eternal value. We are putting the kingdom of God on display. We are giving this world a foretaste of the shalom that Jesus will one day usher in. 
We are showing this world what it looks like when Jesus rules in righteousness and in justice. And that has eternal value. And we are making a real difference for the child who's being abused, for the student who's being bullied, for the minority person who's being unfairly treated, or the homeless person who is struggling to find work, or the renter who is being taken advantage of, or the foreigner who is losing his way in our complex court system. Even if we are not privileged to see it, everything we do to make right what is wrong in this world not only makes a real difference, but it has lasting value. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. You are the salt. You are the salt of the earth. So just as salt was used to preserve food and keep it from breaking down, you and I are flung out into this world to seek to put right what is wrong in this world. But some of you who are still awake will remember that I said that there are two primary uses for salt in the ancient world. And it is crucial that we know about the other use for salt before we go out into this broken world, or we will do so with much the wrong posture of heart. The salt was used to preserve food, but salt was also used to build friendship. Let's keep this one up for a while. And here's the connection that we are meant to make. When food was prepared for the table, salt was used at every point in the process. It wasn't just used to cure the food. It was common to use salt when you cook food. It was common to, to slather it with salt sauce once you finished it. And if you were rich or generous, Salt would sit on the table in a shell or in a bowl so that still more salt could be put on, put on the food when it was served. And I suppose you could refer to this as using salt to flavor the food, but that's not exactly accurate. Much more often, it was used just to make the food palatable, to take the edge off of the rotting or the bitter-tasting food that was the norm for a world without refrigeration. In the ancient world, salt or hospitality was a universal expectation. Everyone was expected to open up their home to strangers and to welcome them to their tables, and most everyone did. But whether or not you put salt on the table when a stranger sat at it, now that was a different thing. Because it was so expensive, salt was reserved only for those whose company was prized for your own family, or for your very closest friends. So serving salt at your table took on a symbolic significance, and it became a metaphor for a generous welcome, for open-hearted friendship, for a commitment to someone. There are dozens of proverbs about salt from the ancient world that all communicate this exact same idea. To eat someone's salt or to eat salt together is to be together on friendly terms. He who shares my bread and salt is not my enemy, says an ancient Bedouin proverb. And to have eaten a bushel of salt together is to have become old and fast friends. 
To taste the salt together means to commit your lives to one another as friends. On the other hand, to serve a meal and withhold the salt was a slap. It was a way of saying, well, my home is open to you, but my heart isn't. One ancient proverb said, without salt, the feast is spoiled. Literally. So that's what lies behind this mysterious statement from Jesus in Mark's gospel. Mark chapter 9, verse 50. It says, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? And then it says this, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. Have salt in yourselves. Do you remember even seeing that passage before? I think the most recent edit of the NIV is actually a better translation of this verse. It says, have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. Have salt among yourselves. In other words, welcome each other, welcome others with a generosity of heart. Romans chapter 15, verse 7 says, accept one another just as Christ has accepted you in order to bring praise to God. The Greek word for accept in Romans 15, 7 is made from two other Greek words, and they're joined together to convey a single concept. I want to just put these together for you because I think this creates such a powerful picture. One of the Greek words means to take the initiative to move towards someone. And the other Greek word means to take someone into your arms. That's the word that's in this verse to take the initiative to move towards someone, and then to take that person into your arms. Take the initiative to move toward others and take them into your arms then, just as Christ took the initiative to move towards you and to take you into his arms in order that God may be praised. Jesus points to the world and he says, take my lead. And then he wades out into this broken world, which denies his claims and rejects his moral standards and lives contrary to his purposes, and he loves it. He befriends it. He invites it over. He welcomes it at his table. In Jesus, we see these two opposing qualities of salt brought together in perfect expression, waging war on what is wrong in this broken world and extending friendship to the broken citizens of this broken world at the very same time. Right? Isn't that how Jesus treated us? And he calls us to do the same. Open your heart to this world just as Christ opened his heart to you in order to bring praise to God. Here's a reason why I think we are really reluctant to put salt on our table. As followers of Christ, we can live in the dread fear that acceptance will communicate approval. So we receive the world with coldness and caution. We hide the salt when the world comes to dinner, and we only put it out when company comes whose lives we approve of. What if Jesus only put out salt for the people whose behavior he approved of. Not one of us would be at his table. Right? 
Acceptance and approval are two different things. Acceptance means a deep honoring and receiving a person, no matter who they are or how they act. The opposite of acceptance is not rejection of behavior, but rejection of a person. It's closing your heart to someone. And we don't have that prerogative as followers of Christ. Open your heart to this world just as Christ opened his heart to you in order to bring praise to God. Could you envision having a lesbian couple over for dinner? Or the couple that's living together in the next door apartment? Or meeting coworkers after work at a pub and having a drink together? Or having a picnic with the Trump supporters or Trump attackers whose yard signs drive you crazy? Or inviting a Muslim to coffee? Or letting your son bring his atheist roommate home from college over the holidays? Open your heart to this world just as Christ has opened his heart to you in order to bring praise to God. As salt, we are invited to wade out into this broken world and to seek to put right what is wrong. But as we do, we are invited to open up our homes and our hearts to the broken people in this broken world. I believe that as followers of Christ, if we don't understand our homes, at least in part, to be the setting in which we come together with a broken world, then we do not understand that provision of our home properly. So this means cultivating in our hearts two contradictory impulses toward the world. Rejecting the world where it's wrong and accepting the world where it needs to be loved at the same time. It means being angry and sad about the world and yet gracious and loving toward the world. Who has God put around you in your world? Who are the people that he is calling you to reach out to? Who in this broken world has God put on your heart? We can't have everyone at our table, but we can have someone. Who is God calling you to open your door and open your heart to? Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. It has puzzled biblical scholars for ages what Jesus meant when he warned us about salt that loses its, its saltiness. And the reason is because salt can't lose its saltiness. No matter what you do to it, burn it, freeze it, crush it, dissolve it, still salty. And of course Jesus would have known that. Salt can't lose its saltiness by becoming unsalty. It can't stop being what it is, and neither can we. The only way, then, that salt can lose its saltiness is if it's, used, if it's not used in the way that it's supposed to be used. If it's not applied. And that means either it gets so full of impurities that when it comes in contact with the food, it doesn't make any difference, or it never comes into contact with the food in the first place. 
to fulfill this part of our identity as a church, we need to take a hard look at ourselves and make sure that we don't have so much of the world still left in us that when we go out into the world, we end up blending in. And then we need to get out there and actually come in contact with the world at its place of brokenness. The church has to put aside its tendency to isolate and to insulate. We need to be willing not only to be inconvenienced, but to be unsettled and to be upset by this world's brokenness. It is messy and it is costly and it is painful, but it is also redemptive and it is hopeful and it is beautiful. You are the salt of the earth. So go out and fix the things that are broken. And then when you come home, bring someone who's broken with you. And welcome that at your table. Isaac Dennison wrote a remarkable short story that's called Babette's Feast. It's about how a famous cook quietly and in an unappreciated way serves for years, serves a cold, bickery, and unwelcoming group of villagers, and then lavishes on them an extravagant meal. And it's how the generosity of that meal combined with the faithfulness of her service thaw the hearts of the guests and become a means of grace between them. At the high point of the meal, one guest, a general who was an outsider to the group, recognized the extraordinary gift that was being given. So he stands up to give a speech and he begins and ends his speech by quoting Psalm 85, verse 10. Mercy and truth, my friends, have met together, said the general. Righteousness and peace shall kiss one another. Man, my friends, is frail and foolish. We have all of us been told that grace is to be found in the universe, but in our human foolishness and short-sightedness, we imagine divine grace to be limited, to be finite. And for this reason, we tremble. But the moment comes when we realize that grace is infinite. Grace, my friends, demands nothing from us but that we shall await it with confidence and acknowledge it with gratitude. Grace, brothers and sisters, makes no conditions and singles out none of us in particular. Grace takes us all in its embrace and proclaims an amnesty. I, that which we rejected, is poured out upon us abundantly. For mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed one another. You are the salt of the earth. May righteousness and peace kiss wherever God sends you out into this world.